0: This is JAMDA on the go your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research focused monthly journal of amda the society for post-acute and long-term care medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of JAMDA On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to JAMDA On The Go for February, 2023. I'm Dr.
1: Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Katz, new co-editor in chief of JAMDA for his first appearance on JAMDA On The Go. And as during our January podcast, with Paul's co-editor in chief, Dr. Barbara Resnick, our new format is gonna focus on a discussion directly with the authors of some of the selected articles in our current issue. So we hope you'll like this interactive style with the content experts who actually did the research. Now, Dr. Katz is professor of geriatrics at Florida State University, and also serves as medical director for Westminster Communities of Florida and Presbyterian Senior Life based in Pennsylvania. He's a past president of AMDA with a research focus on medical staff organization and its relationship to quality. He's a certified medical director with over 40 years of experience. And uh, I would say he's also a legend if I'm allowed to say such a thing. Uh, And uh, in any event, he's had 40 years in nursing homes, assisted living and in outpatient geriatric care. And for today's podcast, we're also honored to welcome Dr. Stephanie Rao and Ms. Yanouk Koesters. Dr. Rao is a recent graduate of the University of Pittsburgh with a PhD in Rehabilitation Science within the Department of Occupational Therapy. Her path to research started as a Peace Corps volunteer in Grenada, where she focused on community development and inclusion of persons with disabilities. She went on to earn her master's in occupational therapy where Stephanie fell in love with research working in Dr. Beth Skidmore's lab. And based on her breadth of experience in clinical practice working across the lifespan, Stephanie wanted to focus on improving healthcare delivery at the population level. This led her to pursue doctoral training with Dr. Natalie Leland. Stephanie's doctoral studies focused on understanding current therapy practice in post-acute care. She's eager to continue to understand and promote psychological safety, cultural humility, and health equity to improve high quality care. And really what's not to like about that, right? Uh, Outside of research, Dr. Rao loves yoga, creative writing, and traveling. Ms. Coasters is a PhD candidate at Universitaire Medisch Centrum Gruningen in the Netherlands, and I hope I didn't butcher that too badly. She and her colleagues examined the auditory environment of nursing home residents and the impact of raising awareness among staff as it relates to reducing neuropsychiatric symptoms. The authors of this intriguing article describe how staff empowerment leading to adaptations in the sound environment can have a meaningful impact on symptom burden for cognitively impaired residents in particular. So uh, welcome, Drs. Katzen Rao and Ms. Coasters.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having us. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Carl.
1: All right. So today we're going to start our discussion with Januk Coasters, the lead author of the article soundscape awareness intervention reduced neuropsychiatric symptoms in nursing home residents with dementia. This was a cluster randomized trial with Mozart Plus. Uh, And I like the concept of a soundscape in nursing homes. Uh, They can be very noisy places, as any of us that spend any significant amount of time there can attest. Uh, And that noise can be a stressor for our residents and really not just those with dementia. So Uh, Janu, could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your team at Groningen, and then a little bit about what Mozart Plus is?
4: Thank you, Carl. Of course I can. So, um, yeah, I work at the uh, Department of uh, General Practice and Elderly Care. And um, um, yeah, we have a (laughs) great team, actually. Um, My professor, Sietse Sauramaa is a a geriatric uh, care uh, physician and um, so we also have Dika, which is also the geriatric care physician Um, and and we worked together on on this project. So the the research started with uh, Kirsten and Schertz And they started the research in um, care facilities where people with multiple disabilities live. So uh, they are physically and mentally impaired. And what they saw is that these people suffered from the sounds in the the residential facilities. Um, And they started the Mozart um, application to see if they could uh, change the soundscapes. Uh, in the facilities and it worked. It worked actually pretty well. Um, So they started coming together with um, my professor, Sietze and the rest of the team to see if they could also help other frail uh, people living in uh, residential uh, facilities. So they came up with the idea of testing it in um, care facilities for people with dementia. Because, uh, of course, my professor is an elderly care physician, and uh, they have a lot of experience with um, research and dementia.
1: So what exactly is this Mozart? Uh, That that was something new to me.
4: (laughs) So Mozart stands for Mobile Recording Appraisal Technology. Um, And it it consists of of multiple things, four things, actually. So it's a whole intervention. And we start with training ambassadors in nursing homes. And um, so we learn them everything about Southscape theory, about the intervention, how it will work in the nursing home. Um, And then we use them in the nursing home, of course, as ambassadors, so they can spread the word. But they can also help during the intervention at the nursing home wards. Um, because we need the nurses, of course, to um, yeah, to do the intervention. So we also have some meetings with the nursing teams um, to talk about okay, how to use the application, the mobile application, um, but also okay, you do some measurements with the um, with the Mozart application, and uh, what do you experience? Uh, how do you perceive the environment and how can you change the environment? And then at the end, we have another meeting with the team to see, um, yeah, how can we uh, sustain this? How um, can we do this in the future and and think about, okay, we made some adaptations to the environment after they made the measurements. Um, are there more adaptations we can do? Are there any adaptations for long term? So that's. Actually, the whole Mozart intervention.
1: Oh, great! Thanks for that. So, and and the the actual intervention. I mean, I I get that you know the idea is to make nursing homes or you know make these dementia units more quiet, right? Just to ask ask people to be more quiet. But is there more to it than just that sort of intuitive piece?
4: Yeah, it's not exactly about making the words more quiet, because um, quiet is also not good. I mean, you need sounds to um, to see if the environment is safe, for example. So it's a very deep evolutionary thing uh, in humans that we use sounds to check if the environment is safe. So quiet at all is not good. Then you feel unsafe. Um, So we actually first start looking into... um, Noise, how can we reduce noise? And then we look into how can we um, add sounds to the environment? For example, music that the patients like or um, think about when do you unpack a dishwasher, for example, because that creates a lot of noise, which can be very disturbing, of course, when you have dementia and you have problems understanding the world and sounds around you.
1: Uh, great. Well, so um, if you had some take-home messages or, or something that uh, that our listeners might be able to, to try to implement, uh, what would those be?
4: Uh, I think at first, um, it sounds a bit hard uh, to implement this in a nursing home, to make people aware about the sounds in the nursing homes and how you can influence them, especially as a nursing team. Um, Because the nurses are at work and research has shown that when you're at work, you tolerate different sounds and higher sound levels than when you're at home. Mm. But for the the patients with dementia, it's their home. So there's a gap and you need to make the nurses aware of this. But actually, this is a very um, attainable goal. Um, What we saw is that it's very easy to make the nursing team aware what they can do to make them aware of the gap um of the, the the noises they tolerate and what is good for the patients with dementia um and and actually they were very enthusiastic so that's also very good um i think to know it's very easy you don't have to learn a new trick you just have to become aware um and you mean It's just about listening to the environment and everyone, well, almost everyone um, can listen to an environment, listen to what is there, um, to see what you experience and how this influences you and then observing how it influences the residents. Uh, So I think it's a very important, um, how to say it, I think it's a very important um, topic to discuss.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of intuitive and it also, you know, it suggests a certain level of mindfulness. Right. About the environment. So uh, I, I think that's uh, that's wonderful. Uh, Paul, did you
3: have any any questions? Yeah. Thanks, Carl. And, and thank you, Anuk, for uh, I, I think your your work really highlights, uh, as Carl was pointing out, an, an important issue that's usually overlooked. We just accept it as a fact. Uh, I just have a couple questions. One is, were there any specific types of behaviors that were most impacted? And um, and the second question relates to sustainability. This is not a. This doesn't sound like a high cost intervention. Um, Are you confident that this will be uh, disseminated to other residential care centers as well?
4: So firstly, the first point about uh, behaviours. Yeah, we measured in our study uh, behaviour. Yeah, the the, the problem behaviour of the patient with uh, dementia um, all at once. But uh, previous studies show that it influences, uh, for example, sleep. You wake up more often, you have trouble falling into sleep, especially when you have dementia. Um, but what we also uh, saw in previous studies, that it influences um, apathy, but also agitation and wandering around the wards, um, which, of course, is very hard for the nurses to uh, to, to manage uh, the behavior. Uh, and the second question, I think it is um, an intervention or a way of thinking, actually, uh, becoming aware of sounds. It doesn't have to cost anything Hmm. at all. I mean, you just need time. You need time to invest, um, to become aware, to become aware of the fact that you can feel safe in environments but not safe because of the sounds in the environment. Um, And of course, the adaptations. If you have some money, you can make bigger adaptations to an environment than when you have no money to spend at all. But still, if you have no money to spend at all, thinking about unpacking a dishwasher, uh, using a tablecloth when uh, setting the table for dinner, it's something that is actually cost-free. So uh, I think you can do a lot um, when you don't have that much money to spend.
3: Yeah. No, thank you very much. And, you know, I also like just a comment is that because the interventions are very facility and staff specific it is almost like a quality improvement approach yeah uh, and which which is i think you know uh, most people uh, can resonate with so yeah i thank you again for your great work yeah i think our
1: listeners yeah probably could uh, do some pretty easy uh, qa quapi type uh, uh, interventions here. And, it, you know, it's just a matter of sort of intentionality, right? Being intentional about uh, improving the the soundscape. I love that word. I'm going to start using it. And and uh, especially, I think, on the night shift when things can be very uh, uh, noisy in some facilities, on some hallways, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, um, thank you so much. Uh, that's some great discussion and perspective. Yanuk, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us with us today on JAMDA to On The Go, and best best wishes for a successful future uh, that helps enhance the experience of older, vulnerable people. And actually, and before you go, I know in, in the Netherlands, there is actually this specialty called elderly care and, you know, elderly care facilities. And in the U.S., we're trying to kind of move away from the use of that word as being a little bit ageist, and it's probably not an exact translation. But, you know, for our listeners who might rankle at the sound of the word elderly, you um, you know, because it connotes frailness and and all that. Um, Just uh, that is an actual thing in the Netherlands, and it's not pejorative in any way. Right, Yanuk?
4: Yes, that's true. Thank you very much for your time.
1: All right, take care. So we'll move on to our second paper for discussion, which is called Examining Real-World Therapy Practice of Cognitive Screening and Assessment in Post-Acute Care, which we will discuss with Dr. Rao. I must say that we see a lot of misinformation and chart lore coming from the hospitals, at least in the nursing homes I'm involved with, like, for example, patients who are labeled as suffering from, quote, advanced dementia, unquote, uh, in the emergency department or by hospitalists. Yet by the time I see them the day after admission in the SNF, they're like completely conversational and oriented in two or three spheres. And it's like, okay, sorry, this person does not have advanced dementia, but um Anyway, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your team at at Pitt that did this work?
2: Sure, and thanks so much for the opportunity. So my name is Stephanie Rao, and I recently graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a PhD in rehab sciences. Congrats. Yes, thanks. (laughs) And I, I had the privilege of really working with some brilliant, dedicated scientists Including Dr. Natalie Leland, who has expertise in health services and stakeholder engagement, and Dr. Beth Skidmore, who is an expert in cognition, and then also Dr. Terhorst, who is a biostatistician, and Dr. Gary Webb, who is an expert in health equity. And just wanna call these members out who were all part of my dissertation committee and co authors on this paper, because it was definitely a team effort to do this work.
1: Yeah, great. So uh, what was your impetus for exploring this issue?
2: Well, I think like what you said, there is um, a big need to have improved care coordination across settings. And we know that as the population is getting older, we're seeing rates of dementia and cognitive impairment increasing. And we also know that there's evidence that interventions that therapists can deliver in post-acute care may improve outcomes for individuals with cognitive impairments, but we do need to identify them before we can deliver those interventions. And so this paper was really to look at what is current practice before we even start to think about standardizing any sort of cognitive assessment by therapy providers, and also start to study if there's an association between delivering those assessments and outcomes. So it's that first step of of what are we doing right now?
1: Right, right. So um, did you have any challenges in in conducting this study?
2: I would say the biggest challenge was with data, where it was an observational study. So we used pre-existing data from the electronic health record. And uh, while it was within one health system, we did, we were very lucky that there were 34 post-acute care sites that were willing to share their electronic health record data with us. Mm-hmm. And so even within those sites, they had used different platforms. So there was uh, quite a bit of coordination with health system leaders and with IT experts that needed to occur. And then also um, doing the data merging on the back end. And I I would say, though, that my mentorship team, because they had such strong relationships with the health system already, that we were able to get the data in a pretty timely manner. But I I think it was only because they had a really good track record of being good stewards of the data. And um, otherwise, as a PhD student, if I was just doing it on my own, I don't think I would have been able to access it. (laughs)
1: Right. Well, especially since there's probably, uh, you know, across all the different care settings that you study, there's so many different EHR systems and different ways of data mining and so on. So, uh, yeah, what were your take-home messages from this study?
2: I would say uh, the big, I I first just want to define a couple of things to be able to give the take-home message where we looked at cognitive screening and assessment and that can mean a lot of different things but for this paper cognitive screening was did therapists document at all on on cognition where they would have screened for it informally through observation so we Mm -hmm. define this as there are parts in the chart where there's a discrete field for certain elements of cognition for example orientation safety awareness problem solving and those specific fields were a little bit different across post-acute settings, but anytime a therapist documented on any one of those fields, we counted that as cognitive screening. And then for assessment, we define that specifically as any sort of standardized cognitive assessment that um, is a validated measure that's used in practice. And we did have a stakeholder advisory committee that helped us with defining cognitive screening and assessment, and then telling us what data fields to ask the IT experts to pull for us. And so I would say the, the biggest takeaway, um, while there was a descriptive analysis and then some regressions, but I would say the biggest takeaway is from the descriptive analysis that really looked at how therapists were currently documenting. And I, w- I would say that there were there was quite a bit of variation across disciplines, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy, as well as across post-acute settings. And so that really poses a lot of questions about, is that more so that there are differences in documentation habits, or is it there are differences in practice patterns?
1: Right, right. Okay. Well, so how do you think the findings of this study might change clinical practice? It sounds like maybe working toward uh, more standardization and and, uh, the performance of these cognitive screens or or what?
2: I I would say really long-term, that's kind of my vision for it, that as we're shifting to value-based care, this study really examines how there's a great opportunity to have more transparency and better care coordination as it relates to a patient's cognition. And uh, therapists are in a great position to do that because they do spend a good bit of time with patients in each of those post-acute settings. Um, But knowing that there's variation right now, it it suggests um, there could be a great opportunity to coordinate with stakeholders and electronic health record platforms to see how can we get to the point where we have a standard measure that is consistent across settings.
1: Great. Uh, Paul, do you have any any questions
3: or, or uh, information to share on this? Yes. Uh, thanks, Carl. And Stephanie, thank you. I, I really found this quite interesting. And I do have a few questions for you. I, I guess one would be, if I recall, the average length of stay on the subacunits was only four days. Would that be a reason that screening did not take place as um, as often as you might have wished?
2: That, that is a great question. And that's true. The length of hospital stay was about four days on average. The, the post-acute stay was really what we were looking at in terms of the clinical documentation. And we didn't actually have access to that variable to, to get the, what the post-acute care length of stay was. So it could have been longer, but I think that that's a good point that length of, if we were to be able to um, include that variable in, that could add uh, some strength to the study to really understand if that is a factor.
3: And Stephanie, you alluded to this already that uh, this was within the uh, UPMC um, system, the uh, the facilities, but do you think it's still generalizable even though you were dealing with one health system?
2: That's, That is a great question. There are a few, one of the main concerns with generalizability I have for this study is um, with the the patients that we were seeing, there was not very much diversity in terms of race or ethnicity. And Mm -hmm. so there could be, and then there was also um, just the timing of the data poll. Over 40% of the sample was patients with total hip or knee joint replacement. And that could be just with uh, where policy was at that time, it could be related to the bundled payments and what the um, incentives were at that time. And I expect if we were to repull the data post COVID, we would see a really different patient population spread. So I am am wondering um, with, especially with total hip and knee joint replacement being an elective procedure and being over 40% of the sample that there's not Necessarily as strong of an impetus for therapists to yeah. screen or assess for cognition. So, um, you, but your question with it being within one health system, yes, I do think there are concerns with generalizability and then with the patient population being what it was. And then at the same time, because there was so much variation within this one health system, I would expect that there's probably variation. Uh, even more variation if we were to expand it to other health systems. So yeah. I think the main point of seeing, of exploring how much we can standardize cognition assessments and what parts of what we want we want to standardize could be really interesting to explore. Yeah.
3: Oh, thank you for that. And I, one final question.
2: Yeah.
3: Is um, um, uh, is each? I guess we assume that each discipline: physical therapy, occupational therapy, therapy, and speech in their training are taught how to do cognitive screening and assessment. Is that a correct assumption or are they taught different things?
2: I would say they're taught different things. Uh, Occupational therapy and speech therapy are both uh, taught and it is both in in their scope of practice to deliver standardized assessments. Physical therapy tends to not deliver standardized cognitive assessments, but they are trained to consider cognition as it relates to a patient's safety with their mobility. So they will, they consistently will document on things like orientation and safety awareness and um, being able to follow commands.
3: Great, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. well, thank you. Thank you again for your great work.
2: Okay, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
3: I, um, so
1: wait, I, um, I wanna ask a couple of other things. Uh, So, Stephanie, most of our listeners are probably aware of the BIMS or or Brief Inventory of Mental Status, which is a 15 point cognitive screen that's done as part of the minimum data set or MDS on all skilled nursing facility residents in the U.S. upon admission, like within five days, and then periodically uh, thereafter, and also on home health recipients uh, via their OASIS form. And I know there's also similar screening tests in acute rehab and long-term acute care, which are the other Impact Act uh, post-acute settings that you looked at. So these are generally brief and they're administered by nurses. And I guess one thing, one difference is that rehab professionals are going to be more attuned to functional status, functional implications, safety awareness, and that. And am I correct that your team felt that these standardized instruments were inadequate to really capture sort of practical cognitive issues or, or, uh, you know, if not, why not? And if so, why? Mm-hmm.
2: That's a great question. And I would say the BIMS is really important for identifying dementia or very significant changes in cognition. And th- this can be meaningful for like authorization for placement if, if a patient needs a higher level of care, even if they do have a higher physical function, but like definitely- uh, uh, present as having some severe cognitive limitations, they're mm-hmm. super beneficial for that. But there's an opportunity to screen for more subtle cognitive impairments that do impact a patient's ability to stay safe at home. And th- this is things like, like being able to manage their medications or being able to prevent falls by maintaining safety in their environment. So those right. more subtle or mild cognitive impairments are uh, the next step of now that the BIM, we have the BIMs and we do have BIMs and CAM and inpatient rehab and other similar assessments in home health. And you know those are definitely important and, and serve their purpose. And then we want to get even more specific and address the more subtle cognitive impairments to be able to address a patient's functional cognition.
3: Right. Uh, Carl, I, I don't know about you, but I rarely see a BIM score. And that may be a problem with me personally, but um, versus there's often you know contact with therapists during team meetings, et cetera. but I yeah. I, I don't see the BIMs that that often.
1: Yeah, that's because some some facilities sequester the MDS someplace that's not in the main part of the chart. So you have to sometimes do some digging for it. But I try to look for it, you know, if there's any concern. But clearly, Stephanie, the BIMS is is not going to turn up things like is a person able to self-manage their medications and things like that. So you answered my question and, and uh, uh, great stuff. So great. great discussion. Any any final words, Stephanie, before we uh, move on to our last study? Uh,
2: just For any, for any PhD students who are listening, I would say I was just so surprised and thrilled to be given the opportunity because being a PhD student, there's that feeling of like, I don't know if anyone is ever going to care about what I'm researching. And so I will tell you the opportunity will come and keep going, keep doing your work. People will care and (laughs) you won't be the only one in your silo.
1: Uh, That's fantastic. And you know what, thank you for your great work and, you know, picking a good important area to work on. And thank you for joining us today.
2: Great, thank you.
1: All right, so Paul, we're going to conclude with one additional article that we're hoping uh, you can provide a synopsis of. Uh, This article is by Dr. Shanna Treneman and her colleagues from Dalhousie University in Canada. And this is entitled, Patterns of Antipsychotic Dispensation to Long-Term Care Residents. Can you please fill us in on what this study demonstrated?
3: Yeah, thanks, Carl. Um, The objective of this study was to describe dispensing patterns of antipsychotics in long-term care residents with a specific focus on factors associated with the continuation of an antipsychotic after a fall-related hospital stay. The authors uh, collected their data from the Nova Scotia Seniors Pharmacare Program, and Health Data in Nova Scotia for all adults 66 years and over that resided in long-term care over a number of years from 2009 to 2017. They found that of those older adults who were dispensed at least one antipsychotic, the great majority, 90%, resided in long-term care. I guess that's not too surprising. Um, a mean of 40% of long-term care residents over those period of those those years, received at least one dispensation per year. Wow, that's that's high. Risperidone and quetiapine were dispensed most frequently. Then, when they started to look at the 544 beneficiaries who resided in long-term care, who survived a fall-related hospitalization and were discharged back, 439 of those, or 81%, continued on an antipsychotic after hospital discharge. So, um, you know, having um, practice in Canada, and I still have many colleagues in Canada, I, I do know there are uh, the, the the frequency, uh, the prescribing patterns are a little different for antipsychotics, although so they're coming down significantly. And I suspect that after 2017, we see a, a drastic decline. But in terms of the take-home messages for this study, um, yes, antipsychotic prescribing rates are very high in Nova Scotia, as in other provinces, probably even higher in Nova Scotia. Um, and then when you contrast to the U.S., where the prescribing rates of antipsychotics are much lower, uh, my personal take is that um, this may reflect the fact that in the U.S., much of our our regulations are federally based. In Canada, they're provincially based. So they do differ significantly between one province and another. Hmm. Um uh, so I would say, and I think, of course, you know, many people in Canada uh, are well aware of that. I think a second take-home message is the need for more rigorous medication reconciliation post hip fracture um, uh, from the hospital, uh, including a standard approach for deprescribing, prescribing uh, given the very high fact, you know, given the fact that a uh, significant proportion of those Nova Scotia long-term care residents were continued on antipsychotics. Um so I thought it was, you know it was a, it was a great study it um it highlighted I- issues we deal with day to day.
1: Yeah yeah so um and it brings up a lot and we see like there are differences among our states even though there are, there are federal regs uh, around antipsychotics and like in California uh the prescriber and only the prescriber has to obtain informed consent for all psychotropics in nursing homes. Uh, So that means that if somebody comes out of the hospital and some hospitalist has decided to, you know, give PRN Seroquel for insomnia, Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, I cannot order that, uh, nor would I want to probably. But if I even if they're on a, you know, an antidepressant or something, I have to actually talk to the patient or family before that drug can be given. So, you know, that's definitely a a sort of a stopgap, whereas. I think uh, there may be many uh, post-acute physicians who, if they get a resident that that gets admitted from the hospital on an antipsychotic, they don't change anything that the hospitalist has done. They don't even consider it. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, it's maybe a a lesson uh, that in some ways regulations can help. It can help uh, reduce the inappropriate use or inappropriate continuation of of these meds. But uh, I think clearly there's less antipsychotic prescribing in the U.S. because of the scrutiny, Uh, but the fact remains that this class of medications is inappropriately prescribed, uh, both in the hospital and in long-term care. And it falls to us to comprehensively assess the need for it, right? Is there behavior or psychiatric symptoms that really, uh, really justify it? Uh, So um, other comments, Paul, on this?
3: No, I think you you hit the nail on the head. I, you know, the there's certainly a push to clearly uh, identify target symptoms. You know, why the drug is prescribed, and uh, I've seen the same as you that uh, there uh, there are many uh, people put on antipsychotics for clearly inappropriate reasons, particularly in the hospital. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And and even for yeah. delirium,
1: right? I mean, it's not—it's not the the evidence for delirium. Even though we use it uh, for that, uh, it's not great, right? right. Yeah. So yeah, I know there's a lot of on- ongoing controversy around antipsychotic use in post-acute and long-term care. And as you said, I—you know—we still see plenty of inappropriate use here in the U.S. Uh, And I just want to say the governmental and consumer advocacy attacks on basically all use of antipsychotics seem to have this attitude that, you know, we prescribe these meds for convenience of nursing staff or to sedate patients. And while there may be some individuals who do that, I think it's safe to say that in a substantial majority of instances, and certainly among our listeners, right, uh, that these meds are prescribed to relieve distress, whether it's frank psychosis with hallucinations, paranoid or other delusions, or whether just, you know, behavior that shows that the person is suffering, we're doing it to alleviate those symptoms. And, you know, when non-pharmacological measures have failed, as they often do, this is what we are left with. Yeah. yeah, to me, the dogmatic attack on all antipsychotics in this population, just because they're risky and don't have a great evidence base, I think, may be preventing some residents who really could benefit from psych- antipsychotics right. from getting the, any
3: last thoughts on that, Paul. No, I, I totally agree. I think that yeah, I totally agree with your your conclusions.
1: Yeah. Well, great. Uh, That's going to wrap it up for this Jamda On The Go podcast. So, thanks again to Drs. Katz and Rao and Ms. Coasters for a great discussion. And thanks, as always, to our editors and staff from Elsevier, whose efforts continue to generate one great Jamda issue after another. Please take a look at the February 2023 issue. There's a lot of good stuff in there that we didn't discuss today. And next month, for those of you who will be attending the AMDA annual meeting live in Tampa, We'll be recording the podcast live in the exhibit hall on March 10th at 3 p.m. So please come come by, say hello, watch, uh, maybe heckle quietly, and uh, we would love to see you there. So uh, references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Thanks again to our uh, contributors. And until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda On The Go.
0: If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit PALTC.org slash podcast.